Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. It was the host of the summit, the president of the Ivory Coast, who set the tone. Alassane Ouattara said it was totally unacceptable that in this day and age, refugees were being traded as slaves in Libya. This disgraceful drama reminds us darkest hours of humanity. I call on our collective sense of responsibility to take urgent action. Many refugees in Libya are in detention centers where conditions are appalling. Others are bought and sold by those with little respect for human life. The slave trade in Libya has shocked and embarrassed leaders in both Africa and Europe, and it has injected a sense of urgency into this summit. We've arrived in Tripoli and we're starting to get a little bit of a better sense of how this all works. Our contacts are telling us that essentially there are auctions one to two times a month and that there is one happening within the next few hours. So we're going to try and head out of town and see if we can at least get some sort of sense of how it works, where it is and how this all plays out. We've been waiting the last few hours just to receive word as to whether the auction has started. We now understand that there are two separate auctions going on in this town that we're in and in a town only 20, 30 minutes away. And it looks like we will be able to go in and witness how this, how this all happens. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and today we're speaking with progressive candidate from Connecticut, Muad Harazi. Welcome. Hey, everyone. Uh, nice to uh, virtually meet you, Tina. Excited for the opportunity. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk to, talk to you about, obviously, your progressive platform, but also foreign policy, because you are a Libyan-American, and I believe you're probably the first Libyan-American to run for office. And you were born in Libya, right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, correct for, for both. Definitely, uh, as, uh, as I'm aware, the first Libyan-American to run for Congress, uh, and uh, I was born in Libya. So I think it's interesting because that gives you a, a very different perspective on American foreign policy. And the incumbent that you're running against is um, somebody that's been involved in foreign, po uh, foreign policy in Congress. So I think it's an interesting way that you can differentiate yourself because you have lived experiences that, that uh, John Larson will simply never have. Um, so congressional candidate uh, or congressional district one is in Connecticut. What is the basic makeup of that um, area? Is it, would you say, more establishment Democrats or more progressives in general? And is it, or is that changing as we speak? So Connecticut has a nickname, uh, which is the land of steady habits. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it has an entrenched uh, liberal uh, democratic state. Um, we have an entirely democratic congressional district, right. or congressional delegation. Um, but what that, what that 
uh, name kind of misses is that there is a growing and burgeoning progressive movement and uh, progressive wing of, of the state. Uh, and uh, we're looking to shake things up. Uh, we think the land of steady habits is uh, hopefully going to be uh, an anachronistic nickname very soon. Um, but uh, we're excited. We think that there's a lot of progressives, a lot of young progressives right. who want to do something different and, uh, and that, uh, you know, the steadiness uh, and the normalcy of what has been occurring is not uh, sufficient for them or for their families. Yeah, I feel like Connecticut has a lot in common with California in that respect. Uh, you know, we're one party ru rule here in California, but there is a massive difference between the policies that the young progressives want and the policies that the neoliberal establishment uh, still clings to. So, but there is a changing of the guard happening as we speak. And I think as the Zoomers become older and they uh, start to step in the, into those positions of power that we're gonna see actual fundamental change in the country that has been really difficult for the last two decades. So it's good to see young folks getting involved in politics. And I believe you're in your early twenties, correct? Yes, correct, yeah. So quite young to be running, running for Congress, good for you. Um, Let's talk about Libya for a second right off the bat, since that's your um, home nation. You know, we were involved in some things with Libya a few years back, uh, policy, foreign policy-wise, that involved, under the Obama administration, involved Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Uh, there's now a Libyan slave trade that's been going on there, and I don't think a lot of Americans are aware of it. And sometimes when I've seen it been, been brought up in conversations, for example, on social media, a lot of liberals seem to think it's a conspiracy theory. Uh, what would you say to those liberals that think that way? So 100% uh, Libya has been uh, unfortunately destabilized. Uh, the current status there is, is, is not, uh, is not, it's not, a, it's not really safe right now. Uh, there, there is a lack of order and, uh, you know, a strong functioning government. Uh, and because of that, uh, there is a form of, uh, chaos that is allowed to brew and um, we all Libyan people saw that and you know Americans in the world saw that when when they saw videotapes of a slave trade occurring in, in right. Libya uh, which is you know tough to believe in for a Libyan American uh, but nonetheless uh, absolutely true and in something that cannot be I think uh, uh, fought off uh, that is the reality in 2020 or 2019 when that video was released uh, there was a slave trade operating in Libya which is uh, extremely extremely disheartening and, and terrifying to, to think is case, but 100% a reality uh, and, um, and absolutely not a uh, um, false claim. Right. And I think back to that period of time when there were there were people that were sort of warning the government at that time that if they destabilized the reason, region, it was more likely that, that a more um, authoritarian far-right regime would take place versus somebody that was more uh, interested in democracy. So this wasn't, shouldn't have, it shouldn't have been out of left field, and I think it sort of was for the Obama administration. Uh, do you think Secretary Clinton at that time should have been more aware of that danger, or do you think that these folks are just so trapped in their neoliberal uh, bubble about what they think is proper American imperialism, proper American empire, and that we're the police of the world, et cetera? And most of the time when they do that, those are the arguments they use, right? But Behind closed doors, they're more concerned about furthering business interests, protecting, uh, you know, corporate Americans, making the world safe for them to do business abroad and things of that nature. What are your feelings in that regard? So uh, my feelings are complicated. Um, when it comes to the revolution, uh, I think that the Libyan people had a lot of agency there and that they were they were tired of a repressive government that, uh, uh, you know, murder when, when it wanted 
would surveil uh, without any regard for civil liberties uh, and completely terrified and uh, paralyzed its people. Uh, and so the Libyan people rose up, uh, I believe, through their own agency. There was no kind okay. of, uh, a kind of, uh, there was nothing that was motivating them beyond the desire for freedom. Uh, and so uh, I think that the U.S. involvement when it was protecting the Libyan people from a Gaddafi regime that had called uh, the Libyan people uh, terrorists and rats and rodents that they were going to uh, eliminate and extinguish. I think that that intervention then was right uh, because they, okay. were, they were bombing the Libyan people and I had you know family members calling terrified. Uh, and so I think that that was the right decision. Whether the intention was proper or not, um, you know, you, you, people can glean that from kind of the messages in the emails and the New York 10 and stuff, right. which unfortunately really was really, uh, I think, just uh, uh, sickening to see. Um, but, but I think the action was proper in what was really the, the biggest mistake that was made, which was Obama, well, the statement that Obama made, was the day after. Uh, you know, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to take out a regime when you have the world's most powerful military. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think we planned enough for what was going to come next, right. which I think, you know, having, having the world's most sophisticated government, I think we should have been able to, to stabilize or help living people in their, in their search for democracy. But unfortunately, what we allowed happen is uh, a renegade U.S. citizen go over and take, take over half the country, uh, allow... Uh, foreign intervention from France, uh, the UAE, uh, and kind of these 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 other repressive regimes. Um, so uh, it's a complicated story. There's good and there's bad. Intention yeah. matters. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think it was always in the right place. But but I think you know, at the best, we avoided another Rwanda or Bosnia by intervening. Uh, but unfortunately, we've allowed a slave trade. So um, the picture was mm -hmm. never very clear. Uh, um, but I, th I think we could have done a lot more to help the Libyan people in their aspiration right. for see itself governing right well you know and i wonder if and, and i hear everything you're saying that's actually um it's it's a rock at a hard place it's true there's sometimes no good choices when it comes to foreign policy but i also sort of think like if america is going to act like the police of the world and we're going to make these arguments about humanitarian interventions then that's maybe what they should be and oftentimes they aren't right so they they maybe stop at the gate before they do any real humanitarian work because not so it's not that much of a big deal to them they're not the ones living those experiences or it's the opposite where they are more concerned about having a regime that's more uh, regardless of whether they're a good or bad regime just as long as they're okay with american interests right so it is complicated um i guess what i would like to see in american foreign policy is just a more honest approach to things and that's something that we haven't seen. And when they try to tell the American people everything they do is for humanitarian reasons, when it's clearly not, people can see it, right? And maybe people would be more responsive to supporting those sorts of things because I think now you've got this pushback, right? Where, where everybody's very against interventionism in all accounts because all they see is never any uh, you know, support for regime change war, right? So I think... Uh, Part of that stems from this inauthenticity that, that has happened. And if people actually, like, where were we? Let me give you a prime example to make this really clear. Where were we for Darfur? I think that's another prime example. We never got involved in what was clearly genocide. The death toll in Sudan has risen to more than 100 following a deadly military raid on a non-violent sit-in in Khartoum Monday morning. According to doctors who've been taking part in the ongoing anti-government uprising, at least 40 bodies were dredged up from the Nile River in the aftermath of the carnage. 
Meanwhile, the state news agency SUNA reported Thursday that the death toll was no more than 46. On Wednesday, the Transitional Military Council said it had launched an investigation into the violence and offered to resume a dialogue on a transition to democracy just a day after scrapping all agreements with an opposition alliance. This is Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. Sit-in squares and spaces have witnessed important events, sparing human emotions and a lively social life, showing the true depth of Sudanese culture and Sudanese identity. History will record this. We in the Transitional Military Council open our hands to negotiation with no purpose but the interest of the nation, through which we can complete the establishment of a legitimate authority that expresses the ambitions of the Sudanese revolution in all its varieties. But the opposition has rejected the military's calls to negotiate, citing ongoing violence against civilians. This is a protester on the streets of Khartoum Wednesday. What about our children? We started from wanting to change the regime. Now the regime is falling completely. So the military council must either respond to our demands or leave. Demonstrators from a range of civil society groups are continuing to demand a civilian transitional government following the overthrow of President Omar al-Bashir in April, after a months-long popular uprising. But there was no American interest there, right? So it's a very um, mixed— Yeah. No, and, I, and I don't even think we need to look as far as Darfur uh, in the past. Uh, I think, you know, during the Arab Spring, we saw different interventions for different uh, regimes. Uh, I think the Egyptian military got off very easily after portraying its people, yeah. Yeah. Square, and massacring right. 100 people. Uh, and I think, you know, we see Syria, we see, you know, different approaches. Syria has been allowed to become a living hell. Um, and, you know, Saudi Arabia got a slap on the wrist, if that, when it started killing its people and Bahrainian people. So he's uh, another example. I mean... So, like you said, it, it, intention matters, honesty matters, principles matter. I think we tend to choose when we want to deploy our principles of human rights and humanitarian intervention, uh, which is really, uh, you know, just, uh, it, it, you, it makes you want so much more. Like, you know, we, we have the ability to be a really strong, positive moral force for the world, uh, but I, I, unfortunately we don't live up to kind of that ideal, uh, and we, we tend to preach it, but we don't necessarily practice it. Um, and when it comes specifically to Libya, I think we had a great opportunity to to really stabilize that country and hopefully be, let that be a stepping stone to the region, kind of in a way we saw with Tunisia stabilizing a bit more uh, because of how small Libya is and like the population there is relatively wealthy and, you know, it wouldn't need a ton of economic aid or anything. All it really needed was the opportunity to let its people decide its fate without foreign intervention interference. Um, but unfortunately, at, right after the revolution, we, you know, we saw emails from Euratin and we saw emails from, uh, you know, the, French, uh, uh, who wanted to also kind of come in to take our resources. Right. Um, so uh, th that's why intentions matter. I think if you center your solutions around humanitarian intervention and the people of that country, then I think you get good results. If you're thinking about how do I go ahead and kind of uh, extract what I want out of this situation, then not only is it bad short-term and long-term, uh, but, well, it's bad both short-term and long-term, to be yeah. honest. Uh, if, a, if a stable Libya had had uh, manifested, then I think it would have been good for both living people and for the American people, right. um, because we'd have hopefully you know you know better trading partners, uh, more right. uh, you know you'd have you'd have just another international partner to work with on uh, issues you care about. But unfortunately, now we have a state uh, just seeped in, in chaos and anarchy. And you know, and you're making a valid point there because uh, it would be better to have a more stable right uh, government there. But here's the thing: they're so short term in their thinking. 
And a lot of times, I mean, the military industrial complex is concerned with only one thing, and that's making money. So they're willing often to sell arms to governments that they know are not stable. And I think the American government turns a blind eye to this. And it's it's become a real problem. Um, also, I want to, speaking of, I want to talk to you about Chris Murphy for a second, because you worked for him as a staffer, I believe. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. Okay, so Chris Murphy, he's been... Um, He's a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, but he's also been very vocal about uh, emboldening, emboldening the State Department more, doing more uh, more of an anti-war piece than, than a pro-defense department piece. Uh, what did you learn from working with Chris? Do you agree with a lot of the decisions that he's made, and how has he influenced you? Yeah, so Chris was, uh, I think, a terrific boss in many ways. Um, one aspect that I really appreciated was his foreign policy thinking. Um, he's not kind of stuck in the uh, in, in the foreign policy box that the the establishment tends to tends to kind of uh, force upon uh, um, you know national members. And, and it is a very powerful kind of uh, um, uh, battalion of like of like you know foreign policy defense uh, minds that kind of tell you what the status quo is and how how you should operate. And I think he's willing to buck that. So that's something I really appreciate about him. But I do think that, you know, uh, the military, the use of the military is not the only tool we have. And, and Chris talks a lot about that, Senator Murphy. Uh, and he talks about how we have other tools and diplomatic relations is something that we tend to underfund and underdeploy and that we could see a lot more fruitful uh, kind of results if if we spend more money on, on the State Department and getting our diplomats out there to actually resolve conflicts instead of spending money on just trying to inflame them. Uh, and no, cra- no case, I think, is better than that in the Yemen war, which he speaks a lot about and has, has done. Uh, Indeed. Great- yeah, Yemen. Yemen's a mess. Mr. President, uh, I'm grateful to be able to join for a few moments uh, with uh, the co-sponsors of uh, this resolution, Senator Lee and, and Senator Sanders. Um, important to pick up uh, on what Senator Lee was just putting down. Uh, the notion that this is a limited resolution uh, that speaks to uh, our participation in an unauthorized, illegal partnership with the Saudis to bomb the country of Yemen. It does not affect our partnership with Saudi Arabia uh, and others in the Gulf region to continue to confront terror, uh, to continue to confront al-Qaeda, a specific carve-out in this legislation allowing for 2001 AUMF authorized activities to go forward. But it is also important to note that if you care about that priority, taking on al-Qaeda, taking on ISIS in the region, um, then you should support debating our resolution because all of the evidence suggests that the continuation of this civil war inside Yemen is making AQAP the arm of al-Qaeda that has the clearest intentions to attack the homeland and ISIS both more powerful. Uh, AQAP controls much more territory inside Yemen than they did at the beginning of this civil war. And if you take the time to meet with Yemeni Americans, they will tell you that inside Yemen, this bombing campaign is not perceived as a Saudi bombing campaign. It is perceived as a United States Saudi bombing campaign. What we are doing is radicalizing the Yemeni people against the United States. Add to this new information that suggests uh, some of our partners in the coalition though not directly working with al-Qaeda, are starting to arm um, some very unsavory Salafist militias inside Yemen um, that are filled with the type of people, the type of extremist 
um, uh, uh, individuals that uh, could easily turn, uh, take the training they've received from the coalitions, the weapons they've received the coalition uh, against the United States. Uh, so if you care about the mission against terrorism, then you should support debating our resolution. But just yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and Chris makes a really strong point as like why, I mean, it's, it's really clear why should the U.S. be involved? Why are we helping, uh, you know, bomb people when we hopefully could spend a lot more money resolving this conflict using our State Department and getting folks on the ground to actually agree? Um, and kind of what you, what you tend to notice is it's usually a lot of external actors uh, pouring fuel on a fire, uh, yeah. but if people themselves, like the Yemeni people decide, I, I suspect they'd, they'd be able to figure out uh, how to resolve their dis disagreements. Uh, I, I suspect like most people, they want to have a prosperous future in a prosperous country uh, and a stable life for them, their families and their kids. Uh, but unfortunately, when you have a lot of kind of foreign uh, incitement, uh, it, tends to, it tends to really complicate the picture. It does. And I think time and time again, you also see the United States uh, going double backwards somersaults to excuse Saudi behavior, right? Because Saudi is our ally and it, it blows my mind that we decided that Saudi was our, was our ally when they're really the, one of the worst actors in that region. And clearly the reason is because of oil. I mean, that's really what's at, at base here. And it would be really refreshing if somebody in the American government would just acknowledge that. I mean, I think the Khashoggi thing that we just saw where, you know, a murdered journalist, uh, we knew the prince was involved. The government is basically saying they're not going to go after him for it. So that's really unfortunate. Um, murdering press members should be taboo no matter who your ally is or where you are in the world, right? And yeah. then, you know, I think about the fact that Bernie Sanders is one of the only other few uh, voices that we've had speak up for Yemen. And why do you think that is? I mean, this should be something that every American congressman and senator should see as a problem and, and speak out against, yet that's not happening. Not, I'm not sure why other members don't speak out about it. I don't know if it's that they're, they're busy and honestly, foreign policy tends to sometimes uh, get put at the bottom of the list uh, and you know they, they just they just don't get to it uh, and the world's a really big place or it's you know they're afraid of the military industrial complex and its power. I that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know it's hard to look into someone's soul, but you can kind of you can kind of look at you can look at the numbers and you might be able to you know get something out of that. Um, so you know, whatever the reason is, which you know, I suspect that, that money might have an influence, and in, uh, especially kind of uh, foreign policy uh, alignments in, within the international community might might play a role. Uh, you don't want to you know, piss off your friends. Uh, I don't know. We'd call Saudi our friends. I would necessarily call them that, but yeah, uh, that type but of I mean, it's 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 been a timeline through and through all of these problems, right? Is that we turn a blind eye to what Saudi Arabia does, and yeah. you often hear them say, "But they're our allies," right? But are they, you know, I mean, or is it really just the oil? Exactly. Uh, yes. So my hypothesis is a lot of it is the oil. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's really interesting when you look at kind of Saudi as a country and Iran, uh, completely two different approaches uh, to them. Uh, but they kind of, uh, I think they're both can be really maligned actors to the region and to the world. Uh, they both are repressive regimes. They both have caused a lot of uh, terrorism in the region uh and you know i think you could probably make a good argument as to saudi being more destructive for the region and probably harming us a bit more with uh um spreading an ideology that is that has kind of uh been, been the uh the undergirding of uh isis and that type of mentality uh so um yeah i, I think i think it's it, there's it, it's tough it's tough to really you know wrap your head around why why yeah. we're so close unless you're like hey they have a lot of oil and we, yeah. we've, had, we've had we've had a good we've had a good relationship with them so far they give us 
give us what we want. And right. uh, uh, I mean, yeah, I, but, it seems like kind of the stereotypical response to things, but at base, I think it is true. Yeah, no, and and, and I think a, you know maybe some of it is also group thinking, and folks don't really want to you know challenge challenge a, a system's way of thinking. It's like, oh, things are, I guess, fine, right? Like you know, we're safe here, and. Uh, and, and this the kind of war on terrorism has kind of led to a, a type of thinking where, where people don't really want to take huge risks because they're, they're afraid that it might backfire back home. But um, I think we at least have an opportunity now, given the fact that we're hopefully moving away from fossil fuels and right. you know, the, producing a lot more of that back home. Uh, so we're not as dependent on Saudi. And maybe that's why for the first time in a really long time, we've butt Saudi leadership and decided that Congress decided that it would uh, Pass that that war power war power resolution, I believe, uh, against the Yemen war that would pull us out. But unfortunately, right, it was vetoed right. by Trump. Um, but that that was a huge, I think, uh, stand against Saudi, which like I, I agree said, with I don't that. think. Yeah. I, yeah. It's definitely a so. step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. So but, uh, uh, we'll see what Biden does. Uh, right. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was uh, going to be my next thing. So we'll see what Biden does, right? Because time and time again, you see both parties sort of. You know, the things that they have bipartisan agreement on are, are things like this, foreign policy, and it's generally bad for the country, but it's good for corporations, right? Um, so you're running in you're running in a three-way race. So you're running against the incumbent, incumbent who's John Larson. He's a pretty powerful guy. He's been uh, chair of the Democratic caucus in his past, uh, just to give people an idea, so was Nancy Pelosi. Um, so he's definitely somebody that the DNC might choose to protect, right? And then you also have another gentleman running against you, Andrew Lignani, I think his name is, and um, he's a bit more progressive. So uh, let's start with John Larson. Where, I mean, I would imagine that it's easy to, to draw some really big differences with John. He's older establishment, um, definitely ingrained in the neoliberal thought. Uh, I doubt he supports Medicare for all. He's more of an ACA kind of guy. So what are some of the main differences that you have with John? Yeah, so great question. Um, I think that the differences between us are vast uh, and probably uh, numerable, but I'll try to list out some of the biggest ones. Um, so for one, Representative Larson takes a, absolute, a ton of money from uh, corporate interests, yeah. uh, and that's how he tends to, to finance his reelection campaigns. Uh, and I think that that, uh, one, speaks to uh, where his priorities lie and to uh, kind of how he can be influenced by by that backing, which is just, uh, I think that's something that's innate. If you take their money, you have to do their bidding. Um, but when we look at the money, uh, he takes a lot of money from health insurers, uh, finance yeah. industry, and defense. Uh, so we can take each one of those one at a time, and I see how I think it affects his thinking. Uh, but when it comes to health insurance, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, a public health crisis, uh, and we've continuously seen skyrocketing costs for uh, healthcare and Connecticut is, is one of those states that is also suffering from that. We're no different from anyone else and same thing with our district. Uh, but Hartford is, is also the health insurance capital of the world. Uh, so it is. so uh, we have a lot of powerful stakeholders here and they definitely have wow. a ear. So in the middle of this crisis, uh, Representative Larson's response is not to reduce the age of Medicare uh, to 55, but I, I believe it's merely to allow people to buy in at age 55. <sighs> I understand. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think that he, he really gets it at this point. No. Uh, uh, and, and I think we need Medicare for all. That's what I believe. Uh, as somebody who studied health policy, so that was my background in college, oh, okay. and, and, uh, what I studied and what's what I worked on when I was in Congress working for Senator Murphy. Um, 
like th there are many reasons as to why Medicare for all are, are necessary, but uh, you don't really have to look too further than a couple of reports uh, by Public Citizen, which say that if we had Medicare for all, we would have saved uh, about a third of, of the lives that were lost. Uh, you know, th that is a moral decision. It's, it's really clear. Uh, you, you, you have to either be deciding to side with health insurance companies or you decide to save lives. It's not much more complicated, yeah, than that in my opinion. Uh, another big difference, defense industry, Representative Larson continues to back them uh, year after year. Uh, he typically gives them more money than they even asked for, uh, which doesn't make a lot of sense. We have so many priorities in our country. Why have you would met you... insurance companies? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously, seriously. So it, you know, it, it, he, he's completely beholden to these defense industries, and, and we do have a, a few of them in our district, uh, and they do supply jobs, which is really important. Uh, but I think you can you can spend that money elsewhere. Uh, it's not like the only way to grow an economy is by building more bombs. Uh, I've heard from so many, especially young people, who are frustrated by our district because if you want to work as, say, an engineer, the only options you have are to work at Raytheon or United Technologies or a company of that sort. Um, and it, it's you know a lot of people aren't comfortable. Uh, being involved in the military uh, industrial complex, uh, so I think I think his, his prioritizing of the defense industry, uh, the health insurance companies, uh, and when it comes to the economy, his votes on deregulating banks in '99, which precipitated the economic collapse of '08, uh, th those are just ways that I can kind of give you uh, uh, a glance at why I think we're going to be really different. Um, I don't I don't support uh, corporate money in politics. Uh, I think that we need to you know really just untether that from the way we operate. And I think when you do that, you have uh, someone like myself who's able to speak freely and just look at the facts. And it's really obvious like what we should be doing in some of these cases, like we should have Medicare for all. Uh, we should be reprioritizing domestic affairs versus building more bombs. Uh, we have crumbling infrastructure in our district. We have schools that are some of uh, uh, the worst performing in our state, uh, in, in Hartford. Uh, and uh, you know we have a lot of needs, so why not spend it there? And, and why not challenge Wall Street and finally uh, you know, get some get some strong regulations back on them, and uh, you know, stop uh, you know another financial uh, crisis from happening down the road. Right, indeed. Um, so now the other guy in your three-way race, uh, obviously, he's new to the game as well. He's uh, running on a progressive platform. He claims to be for Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, some some things like this. Uh, do you know much about him? Have you seen him out at any debates? Has he been? Uh, having people knock on doors for him? Or do you think he's probably not as uh, much of a competition in this race as, as the establishment John is? So uh, I, want, I definitely think that Representative Larson is going to be the main opponent uh, and, and the biggest contender for this race. Uh, okay. uh, I, I definitely applaud uh, uh, Andrew for, for getting involved. I know firsthand how difficult it is and how much courage it takes. Uh, but I think, I think one, we'll see uh, how serious Andrew is. Um, I don't know him very well. Okay. Uh, but financial disclosures will be happening in a couple of weeks. And I think a big part of, of running and winning a race, uh, especially as an insurgent campaign, is having enough resources to kind of put up a really strong fight and, and make sure that your message reaches everyone in the district, uh, especially when you have a sprawling district like uh, Connecticut's first, which requires a lot of resources. Uh, so I, you know, I, I applaud uh, Andrew, and I think that we probably share a lot of the same vision. Uh, and I, I would hope that uh, progressives can all uh, gather around one candidate uh, as we right kind of that might yeah no you, you're making a valid point there because if you're running against a very powerful incumbent that has the backing of the dnc and has a war chest of corporate money it's really important that uh, grassroots candidates not try to 
you know, run in the same district at the same time and they, have, and they support each other. So it might be, you're right, if it comes out with the FEC guidelines and you're um, out fundraising him five to one, maybe um, you guys can join forces and he can get behind your campaign um, or something of that nature. But it'd be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, no, I, no, I've I've been in a couple of conversations with Andrew, and, and he seems like a great guy. And so, uh, yeah. you know, and I same. I, I think that the most important thing is the movement uh, in the moment, and not the person. Uh, and I think we have a really great movement uh, uh, brewing in a moment. Uh, and so, one hundred percent, I think whoever seems like they're the most formidable uh, opponent for for Representative Larson is the one that we should all get behind. And I think you know a big part of that is making sure you have enough resources to deploy, that you're building a strong apparatus and infrastructure. Uh, of a campaign uh, that can that can really withstand uh, you know a fourteen month campaign uh, season. So I, I think I think once we kind of get closer to the primary, I think uh, you know progressives will will likely I think, join forces around one candidate, um, and we'll make we'll make a decision around who, who the best candidate is. But right. uh, I think and I hope that will be me, and uh, and I'm confident that you know we're, we're doing the work. This campaign is doing the work, uh, and we've gotten like a lot of progress and excitement behind us. Uh, so. Yeah, it sounds like you've been raising a lot of small donations uh, from constituents in uh, in your district. Um, let me talk to you a little bit about the Connecticut, the Connecticut Democratic Party, the party machinations there inside your state. Um, having worked with uh, Chris Murphy, I would imagine that you were exposed to some of that stuff. Have you received any pushback from internal Democratic Party folks um, that you're challenging this really powerful, powerful progressive or a progressive can or progressive congressman? It's been a long day. <laughs> have you received any pushback at all on that? Uh, no, uh, I have not. Uh, I was a little uh, concerned, maybe that I might, but honestly, I've been really pleased with how the Democratic Party has responded. Uh, they've kind of, I think, encouraged or at least welcomed this idea. Uh, there's right. been great resistance, if any, and I'm hoping we can be a model for the country of how to really have a vibrant debate uh, between the more progressive and the more liberal wing of the party. I think it is good for democracy, uh, and that's why I'm doing it. I think yeah. it's best to have ideas uh, discussed uh, vigorously uh, and let the strongest ideas win, the strongest candidate win. Uh, and so far, I think the Connecticut Democratic Party has uh, has allowed for that to happen, and, uh, and I hope it continues to do that. And uh, I, I've been really pleased with kind of how they've been even handed up to this point. Uh, that is so refreshing to hear. You have no idea. <laughs> we're so we're so often hearing the opposite, where where they don't want progressive challengers in these primaries. I'm glad, you know, but maybe maybe they're learning their lesson. I mean, look what happened in Nevada this last month. You had the entire um, sweep of the establishment crew replaced with DSA uh, folks. So I mean, there's they must at some level see that the winds are changing, and I think part of it too is that this this pandemic sort of opened up all of these gaping wounds that are happening in the country, whether it's the need for Medicare for all, whether it's uh, the need for stronger unions, whether it's the need for even a UBI, perhaps, because the income inequality is so severe and it's so stark and people can't afford to pay their bills. And we're facing a very, I, th I think we're still facing a dire crisis, even though we're coming out of the COVID and we're getting vaccinated and things are starting to wind down from that. I think we're still looking at a very hard road ahead. We have, you know, all of these folks that have not been paying rent, they haven't had the rent canceled yet. There's, they've just been kicking that can down, right? So we're kicking, kicking it a few months down, kicking it a few months down. But if, unless they cancel that rent, at some point that rent is gonna become due and these folks that haven't been working for months on end, the $1,400 isn't gonna cut it, that's already spent. How are they gonna make all of those back uh, rent payments? So I'm a little bit concerned about that. 
Um, I, I would like to believe that, um, that the Democratic Party is as well and that they're willing to maybe acquiesce to this idea that neoliberal policy has been, in some areas, very devastating for the country. Um, what are your thoughts on that, by the way? I'm curious to know, has anybody in Connecticut been trying to address uh, rent cancelization cancel, or no? Is that a thing? Yeah. Uh, so, yes, there definitely have been a lot of organizations on the ground, grassroots organizers. Uh, there's a movement, Cancel Rent Connecticut, I believe. Uh, I think we tweeted about it a couple of days ago. Uh, so, and we listed out a few of the organizations that are doing some great work. Uh, and I've attended a couple of uh, protests and rallies around uh, families that were about to be evicted. And uh, we were able to stop those, thankfully, at least for, for the short term. Um, like you said, there, there is a crisis that is brewing in, in a huge tsunami of, of, uh, of like, rent uh, rent uh, debt that is that is going to be owed soon and uh, congress needs to come up with a solution um but yeah so far connecticut uh, progressive organizers have been really good about trying to elevate this issue and get it onto the state's consciousness uh and i think that they've you know, been doing a, a relatively good job um, i know i'm aware of it and a lot of other progressives are um and also to touch on about the last part of of the, the first question that you that you asked uh, about the establishment. Uh, so while I disagree with you know sometimes their policies, I do definitely acknowledge and appreciate kind of the work that they have done, especially on the state and local level. A lot of these folks give up their time to help run you know primaries or help uh, you know grow the the Democratic Party. Uh, so while there might be a disagreement in, in kind of the direction, uh, you know I, I cherish the fact that they've been able. Uh, you know, some of these folks have been in the Democratic Party for for years and have been helping out. Uh, right. And so, like, no, don't. I, while I might disagree with kind of what they the way they they approach uh, policy, I don't I don't by any means want to feel like you know that they, that they're disrespected and that you know the establishment is like necessarily always a dirty word. Uh, it's sometimes the establishment thinking that is that is what I, I find right. problematic. Uh, but it, you know, the people themselves uh, have been I think very loyally trying to to at least the Democratic Party. And so, uh, you know, uh, if, if I were to win, I would definitely want to make make sure that they feel like, you know, they're still also going to be heard uh, and that their their work is has been valued and, uh, uh, you know, making sure that we we include uh, a, definitely a Big Ten um, and try to convince them that our ideas are, are, are going to help out more people and, and are better. And uh, uh, I know sometimes uh, I try to try to resist kind of this urge to like fight against these challenges. Yeah. God. <laughs> These well, established folks, um, and, and especially on the state and local level, I think yeah, these people. It sounds genuine. like you guys have a better state party there. I mean, it depends on where you are. I mean, they're not—they're not mean and contentious everywhere in the country, but they certainly are in some places. Yeah, no, in Nevada, that story. Yeah, right. I mean, the whole chair throwing thing. Remember this? It was like really. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the fact that the, just kind of some of the tactics they deployed there in Nevada were really startling to see, and, and just yeah. I, I don't—I I would. Hopefully, Connecticut will not be like that. Uh, but no. <laughs> yeah, I haven't heard about anything going on in Connecticut, so that's probably a good sign. Yeah, but just just uh, just uh, my my type of thinking is uh, hopefully we can we can work together and have civil disagreement within the party and, uh, and you know kind of uh, gather around what we think the best ideas are. And uh, in the same way that a caucus sometimes you know you might be disagreements, but when the best person is chosen, uh, folks try to really help uh, grow grow that that movement or that way of thinking try to support support that candidate. Yeah. You know, here's the thing. I from uh, from the outside looking in, here's the thing I notice. I think most progressives and most Democrats and most left leaning folks agree with everything you just said. They're just tired of seeing the opposite thing happen to them. And I think, you know, obviously the obvious example is Bernie Sanders and how some of these DNC uh, super delegates and some of them uh, you know DNC uh, leadership 
went out of their way to make sure that he did not win that primary. So it's, I think when they see things like that, they get very upset and angry because they no longer feel like they're part of a big tent, right? It's the neoliberals are in control and it's like, we don't care about your progressive policy kind of an attitude that they see. Is that everybody? No, of course it's not. But it, it does happen enough where I think that they've alienated a big chunk of, of progressive voters uh, across the country. So hopefully, yeah. but I'm hoping that, because I, I like what you're saying in the sense that, yeah, that's the world I want to live in. I want to live in a world where maybe this boomer doesn't necessarily agree with my opinion on, on uh, Medicare for all, but at least they're not trying to stop my guy from winning come hell or high water because Trump is, I mean, they, yeah. some of these guys literally said they preferred Trump to Bernie Sanders and that just set my hair on fire. It's like, are you kidding me right now? How is this? How is that a thing? So, uh, but I think I think eventually it, it will. Those folks will, you know, leave the party, disappear. We, we see it happening already, and I know that there's still a lot of young progressives out there that think the Democratic Party is not salvageable at all. They think yeah. it's, uh, you know, not. It, they're never going to change. I don't think that that's necessarily true because we see the changing. We see the changes happening, right? Yeah. No, I, no, I agree, and, and there are always. Unfortunately, spoilers uh, within within any movement um, will will kind of say either my guy or my gal, or, you know, my way or the highway, and, uh, and try to tank the ship if, if they don't get it their way. Uh, but um, and, and maybe I am describing the ideal, which you know I'm definitely not naive uh, about the fact that there there can be kind of a foul play. But uh, so far, the people I've met within within kind of the democratic establishment or these democratic town committees and things of that sort uh, uh, have been have been really genuine and uh, you know open to, to discussion dialogue and. And, uh, you know, right. I, I've loved that spirit. And I hope, I hope, like I said, we can be a model for the country that it doesn't have to be like, right. if it, my neoliberal candidate loses, then, then I, I'm going to leave the democratic party and it's, it's over. Uh, I think we can, you know, like, let's have, let's have the debate, uh, and, and kind of, let's have good sportsmanship, uh, and let me also say this i understand why somebody would say um and i've i'm a democrat but i've also voted for green party candidates more than once and i'll tell you why if i've got a green party candidate running for um this office here like cd whatever 34 if i see that guy and then i see this establishment guy i I, i'm vote but i'm voting on, on policy alone right to me the thing that matters is policy and if if this guy has nothing in common with the things i want but there is a candidate that's running that does, I'm gonna vote for that person. I don't necessarily think that's a spoiler candidate. I think it's a spoiler candidate if if you're if you're fighting inside your own movement and um, being so headstrong that you can't see that we're winning some battles and maybe not winning all of them, but some of them. So I think, I think there needs to be sort of a strategy if you're looking at uh, motivating leftist policy. I think, there's, I think the strategy of inside outside in, in that respect does make some sense. You cannot walk away entirely from the democratic party and think you're going to change anything in the country that's just not reality so the folks that go that far are not i mean it's it's just you can't i i'm not saying that that doesn't suck <laughs> but it is reality right we we are very much in a system that is dictated by two large parties whether or not they're good or bad i think both of them are very rotten at times there's no two ways about it they're both driven by money i've seen dnc corruption firsthand at their meetings uh, so I'm not denying any of that stuff, but I am saying uh, that it can be it can be changed, and changing it is going to take a lot more work. We're not there yet, but it is happening, and I don't understand why some folks do not see that it is happening. 
And I think it, for all intents and purposes, Nevada is a prime example of that, right? They, the, the people in this, inside Nevada that are part of the Democratic Party said, we've had enough of these folks that are in charge that are being corrupt. We don't like what they're doing. Let's replace them. And that's what happened, right? Yeah. So just no, by and, two and, cents. Uh, yeah. And, and, and to, to uh, clarify, so the spoilers aren't like, you know, to voters who, who might be, you know, who might change their mind. So if, if Bernie doesn't win on voting Green Party, uh, you know, I, I think that, that those tactics can be deployed and, and have, have strategic value. Uh, uh, depending on like you know what's going on and stuff, uh, it, those are not spoilers in my opinion. Um, seeing things where democratic leadership kind of is tilting the scales on one side or another, that to me is like spoiling. It's spoiling what should be uh, a balanced approach. Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, you know, helping uh, Hillary. Clinton, that that to me is spoiling the process. Yeah, hundred like, percent understand. Yeah. yeah. Or Nevada Party, uh, Democratic Party that loses you know its elections and therefore eviscerates the state Democratic Party resources. Right. And gives them <laughs> So to, to me, you know, that's that's meaningful spoiling. Like if I decide yeah, I lost and I'm now going to vote third party, um, you know, I, I don't think that that's that's, that's it's a spoiling of the process and, and, and the ability to choose who you who you think is most qualified. Um, right. uh, that's that's what like I think really is, is frustrating, like you said. Uh, and, and that's where I hope the state, you know, Connecticut Democratic Party and everything I've seen has shown that they, they will do this is it's not. You know, tilt the scales or try to play favorites or anything like that and really spoil the ability for people to actually uh you know choose who they want to, to lead them right i mean it really is it really does boil down to who is in charge right it's who is in charge and if you've got good people in charge everything changes right so the the democratic party wasn't always this pro-corporate dlc mess that it is now i mean that came with bill clinton and the dlc before that they were much more a party of FDR. So the the third way, uh, which is his think tank, if for the younger folks that don't know who third way is, third way is was Bill Clinton's uh, think tank. They were very much motivated by many right wing policies, whether it was privatization, um, believing that the market is the moral arbiter for things, um, you know, getting rid of, uh, of you know, NAFTA, another prime example. So a, a lot of stuff that was very much pro corporation, anti worker rights. And he called it third way, but really at the end of the day, it was very conservative policies that he put through. Um, and in fact, NAFTA, again, prime example, was a Bush's bill. That was not Bill Clinton's bill. Bush could not get it passed through Congress. Bill Clinton could. And he could do it because he was a Democrat, right? So point being is, is things have changed drastically when the third way neoliberals came into power. And when they, you know, and, and it is often the case, power and money sort of consolidate around each other, right? So more power, more money, more power, more money. So you end up just um, sucking up more of both as it as it spins in its cycle. So we, we're, we came to a place where, where the Clinton faction of the party really did control everything. The DNC, presidential yeah. elections, and if Bill Clinton comes out and says, Bernie Sanders absolutely cannot be our candidate, we'd be better yeah. off with Trump in office. They, all of those folks that, you know, got power and money under him are going to do what he says to do, right? Because, but those are the kinds of folks that came into play. We need to get rid of them. Yes, we are getting rid of them clearly. And, and I think part of that is uh, the younger generations, the Zoomers and the millennials, having had enough, right? So, which is good, have enough. Because, I mean, you guys have got a really raw end of the stick as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm Gen X, so I... We started to see those changes when I was in college, but it's gotten so much worse. I mean, when I was at UC Irvine, uh, my tuition was like $500 a quarter. 
I had a part-time job that paid me $16 an hour. And that sounds like heaven to you, right? And this is like 40 years, 30 years ago, whatever it is. Like, it's crazy that that's where we're at. Crazy. Yeah, no, those sound like glory days. Um, my, my dad has told me similar stories of uh, working as a cashier or, or something of that sort uh, and being able to afford paying your college tuition. Uh, yeah. like, I'm, lucky, I'm lucky if a job like that, you know, pays, pays uh, uh, my, my meals for a semester when I was in college. So, yeah. And it's, it's unfair. It's, uh, it's absolutely unfair. We definanced our university system. We, de we definanced our public university system. And when Bernie Sanders talks about free college tuition for public universities, that is not a unicorn. That is not a pipe dream. It is something that we once had and we gave it away. So people need to realize that. Um, let's shift gears and talk about, um, related to that subject, student debt for a moment, because I think this is the other big problem that we are facing uh, economically speaking. This is very a this is a very toxic uh, football, so to speak. It's the, the debt that's owed is much larger than what imploded the economy in 2008. Um, it's ridiculous that if you file bankruptcy, you cannot get rid of your student debt. It stays with you. We have folks that are uh, collecting Social Security that are having those Social Security checks garnished because of the student debt. And Biden was very much part of, of making that happen. This was his policy that he supported and, and helped, uh, helped pass through. So what do we do about this now? Do you have any plans or thoughts in this area? Yeah, well, first, let me say it's it's ridiculous that the federal government is essentially profiting off of our desire to go to school and seek higher education to do what they told us to do to become you know, prosperous and to rise up the social ladder and right. you know you know make make a or, or like achieve uh achieve a lifestyle that that we all want um so that 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 paradigm in itself is is just mind-boggling um but yeah i think that i mean there are really good solutions and i think Elizabeth Warren has been really leading the charge on canceling fifty thousand dollars in student yeah. debt, uh, and I think that that's a great first step. Uh, and I think you know the student debt issue uh, it touches on a lot of other issues, which are the fact that um, minorities, uh, people of color, tend to have a lot more debt, and uh, you know richer people are able to find ways to, to keep their debt low. Um, and there's also like schemes if you if you're wealthier, you might be able to know how to uh, you know. Uh, uh, emancipate like your child and therefore they have like so it, it's a it's a really uh, messed up game and, and uh and a, but there are there are 100 good solutions and when we compare ourselves to the rest of the world we see that we are once again an outlier uh in that this is an unhealthy way uh for us to run our country it's just it, it like saddles people's debt and, and that debt uh erodes your mental health uh your well-being yeah. uh your your happiness um uh and and, and probably is you know based on studies, is definitely uh, also limiting our uh, productivity uh, in, our, in our economic output. Um, so I, I think oh, all in all- It absolutely is affecting the economic output. And here's the other thing, uh, education. The reason we invested in that previously is because it is, it's an investment in society. A more educated population is able to do, um, you know, more productive jobs, more interesting jobs, and we won't have to look to get PhDs from outside of the country. There's, it makes absolutely no sense not to be investing in education, which is the decision that was made. Not only are we not going to invest in education, we're going to profit off selling loans to these folks that that we're going to tell them needs. Like it's a twofold thing that's just atrocious to me. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, and, and we're, we're moving more and more towards a probably uh, like a thinking economy. We'll, we'll probably still you know we'll need manufacturing, but. Uh, we're competing for really uh, uh, kind of new uh, pioneering areas, uh, AI, 
uh, things of that sort. So, uh, and I think we're competing on that with with uh, China uh, in these areas. So, I think we you know we need to make sure that we're we're well uh, well equipped and well tooled to to take on some of these really big uh, burgeoning areas uh, in the economy. Uh, and uh, I think making sure that we have we, we afford everyone the opportunity to be able to to get a higher education will help us. Uh, I think we'll be well positioned for the future. But right now, I think we're, we're not we're not doing a good job of that. No, we're not. So, uh, would you support canceling student debt? Yeah, yeah, I'm 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 all in favor of canceling fifty thousand dollars of student okay. debt, hundred percent. And I think, I think you know Biden can do it uh, tomorrow if he wanted to. Uh, so yeah, we clearly could. Yeah, there's I, no reason why we couldn't. All Biden has to do is, is sign an executive order, and it's done. Really, it's that simple. Um, so I agree with yeah. you there. I'm, yeah. Let's switch gears again because I want to ask you about something that's in the media cycle this week. Uh, Amazon you, workers in uh, Alabama are trying to unionize. Uh, they've had the vote. They're counting the votes as we speak. Uh, we should hear any day now whether or not that's going to go through. What are your thoughts on that? So uh, I think that 100% supportive of the, the unionization effort. Uh, I think unions are really helpful. Uh, they 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 allow people with the ability to collectively bargain and uh, I think benefit us all. So it's supportive. Do you have any plans for growing unions across the country? Because I feel like, um, you know, right to work laws, we've had a host of, of things that have happened that have made it very difficult for workers to unionize over the last two, three decades. But based on what I've read and seen, there has been an assault on unions for about, you know, the past at least two or three decades. Uh, and when you look at when you look at the graphs of productivity with wage increases, you see that we've become extremely productive over the past four decades, but our wages have essentially stagnated. Uh, and a lot of that, in my opinion, has to do with the assault on on unions. Um, and so I think that there have been there have been policy decisions that, that made it hard for people to unionize. Those one should be undone, and we should take look uh, take a look at ways that we can we can make it even easier to unionize. And uh, uh, and I think. Uh, you know, I, there are there are smarter minds that have better ideas than I, I would uh, probably be able to give you right now. Um, but, but you, you know, would jump on board any bills that were helpful in that direction, which is really that's the important part, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a, there's a, there's a, a term for something that I'm, it's, a, it's evading me. But essentially, federal projects uh, are not always guaranteed to be union projects, and, and that is a big a big uh, problem. And one right. of the, the uh, uh, at least Connecticut unions uh, are stressing. Uh, to me that, that they care a lot about. And it makes a lot of sense. Why should the federal government be using a contractor that isn't pro-union? Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense for these big construction projects or anything of that sort to oh, be requiring unions to work. So that, that's like, you know, an example of things that we could do uh, to boost uh, the profile of unions across the country. Um, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. No, it's a solid idea. If if the government's going to you know sign contracts, why not make it part of the deal that you have to have a unionized workforce? I'm, I'm all for it. Of course, you're going to get pushback from the Republicans on that, but that makes sense to me. I, what other parts of your platform are important to you that we haven't discussed then? So, uh, I mean, definitely the environment. We haven't touched too much on that. Uh, you know, I think the Green New Deal has kind of been the, the North Star that's been guiding the progressive movement, and, and that's that's something that I believe in. Um, in Connecticut, uh, this past summer, we saw smog reach all the way over to our coast from the California wildfires. So, I, I think I think that you know, it, this is it's always been I think pretty clear that this is a global issue. But if it wasn't clear, I think people woke up one morning and saw smog, and you know, we had to wear masks and stuff, and realized that hey. Although California is probably really far away, this this should matter a lot to us here, and we we're on the coast, uh, and we're you know there's a lot of cities that are that are already preparing for rising sea levels. So I think having a really strong approach to uh, to climate policy is important to me. 
um, in Representative Larson, I think he t tends to kind of walk a fine line in, uh, yeah. you know, provide a record, sometimes even uh, symbols that he, that he's taking progressive stances. Uh, for instance, he's a co-sponsor of the Green Deal. But when it came uh, time to vote for the USMCA or NAFTA 2.0, he decided to vote for that, which almost every progressive environmental group that I know of opposed because it locks us into a 10-year deal that does not have the protections we need to protect our planet. Um, and, you know, whether, I don't know what, like, there's nothing more important right now than protecting our environment. Uh, like, you know, nothing probably overrides that. Uh, so w whatever the reasoning was for that, I, I think that that was probably uh, irresponsible, bad, bad decision making. And um, I would have liked to have seen a, a different, a different deal. And now we're locked into a 10 year deal that can, you know, just essentially outsource our polluting. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, NAFTA 2.0 really wasn't that much of an improvement at all. Um, there's still point of origin issues, too. There's a host of issues, really. Uh, bad labor law, et cetera. Um, it's very, very frustrating, but, you know, little by little, I guess, we have to, like, we have to take back what we so easily gave up the last few decades, and it's really scary yeah. that this, this is where we were at, but that is where we're at. It seems like, you know, the 1995... Those those were turning points, but really you can trace it back to like the early 1970s before your parents even thought about having you probably. You know, we had something um, called the Powell Memo that was put out and it was really the right wing and business interests, the Chamber of Commerce, fighting back against the FDR policies because they felt they felt workers were too empowered. Um, you know, and they just went down this greedy path and here we are. Uh, so, but let me ask you this, um, what are your parting words? And then I also want to give you an opportunity to let viewers know where they can donate to your campaign. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, parting words would be, um, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of us have honestly forgotten or have lost sight of maybe what a reimagined America can look like. Uh, I think we've like been, we've had this right wing assault on our government or hollowing out of our, of our, you know, public uh, sector that, it's tough to, I feel like, imagine what a system that had Medicare for all, uh, college uh, affordability, um, you know, a, a real a solid infrastructure in transportation that was centered around, uh, you know, low-income people and was able to transport us uh, in an affordable way. That, uh, that I think we, we, we lost sight of what that might look like, but I think it's all achievable and possible. Uh, and when you look at how we position ourselves to the rest of the world, like there's so much that is lacking from our government. And, and I think... All of it is undergirded by this this corporate assault on our government and corporate interest is really just taking over everything. Um, and you know, I saw that firsthand while working in Congress. It's what led me to decide to do this. Uh, to me, this is personal. Uh, I've had to go to the emergency room and delayed cover, uh, delayed treatment because uh, of uh, of medical debt that we owe to the hospital. Um, I've seen my dad look me in the eyes and tell me he can't afford to, to get me a game because uh, you know he, he was in economic recession and he was. He was, uh, you know, losing pay and they were cutting his salary. Um, mm. And so, you know, I think a lot of folks have gone through a lot of these experiences uh, and, and we can't forget that we, we've earned more. Uh, this is something that we've we've developed in the, you know, we've built this economy. It hasn't been built on the back of Jeff, Jeff Bezos. We are, we are the ones who've done this. Uh, it's ours. We deserve it. Uh, and so I think it's time to really take back what we've uh, developed and created. Uh, um, and so I think that, you know, now, now is an opportunity given the fact that people are starting to see and waking up to, uh, to what's going on, given the fact that we have converging crises in our country. So uh, I'm really excited about this campaign, uh, the candidacy, and, and really just able, uh, the ability to take, uh, take this message to the district and uh, hopefully in the country. So uh, thankful for this opportunity and uh, 
places where people can go to donate. Yeah. Uh, so my last name is Harazi, so Harazi.com. Yeah. Uh, we, we say we say in the campaign we're crazy for Harazi. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I went to school at UNC and Duke. They're the Cameron Crazies, so maybe we'll see the, the Crazy Crazy. It's crazy for Crazy. I mean, it's it's really a good good slogan. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So, so Crazy.com, uh, H R E Z I. Uh, so if, if you go there, you can, uh, one, follow us on social media. Uh, all of our links are up there. You can donate, you can email us, you can reach out. Uh, it's kind of a one-stop shop. And, uh, right now it's kind of a splash page, but we'll, we'll, we'll have a f- our full website up in a few weeks with all of our policies and background and kind of the whole, whole, uh, whole deal there. Excellent. Um, yeah.